Hello and welcome to the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. Each episode will bring you the latest news from the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, as well as fascinating interviews with entertainment personalities, government leaders, and community advocates. St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, where Scotland meets the City of Angels. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the St. Andrews Societies of Los Angeles' podcast. I'm your host and podcast moderator, Joanna Lewis, and today we have a great show in store for you. First, I would like to introduce to you Academy Award winner for sound mixing for the movie Whiplash, Mr. Ben Wilkin. Hello. And, and our guest today is the director of Robert the Bruce, Mr. Richard Gray. Pleasure. You're very welcome. So I know, Ben, you have a ton of questions, and because you both are in the film industry, you were going to be the resident expert for this podcast. So take it away. All right. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do this, Richard. So the first question, uh, and these are sort of, I think these were aggregated questions from a whole panel of people. But the first question is, how, how did this current project unfold? I mean, it's it's been a, a while since Braveheart. So this is obviously something you've has been in the works for a while, I mean, historically. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this whole project came to fruition. Yeah, so, you know, Braveheart came out, I think, when I was 15 in Australia, and Mel Gibson was a bit of a god in Australia back then. And that film was, you know, I just started making short films, and that film was just a, had a massive impact on me and always been one of my favourites. You know, it's probably the perfect age to watch that film for the first time. And... Uh, a friend of mine, Anna Hutchinson, who, who was an actress who plays the lead role in this film, or ag, she was making a film with Ang- Angus Fadgen in the UK. And he was telling her about this script that he's had for a decade, uh, Robert the Bruce. He's always wanted to continue to tell that story. And Anna, you know, we've made films in Australia and around the US, and she knew that I was quite the fan of Braveheart, so she said you should get it to, to Richie. Uh, and I was scared about reading it because you know, the last thing you want to do is a sequel to Braveheart, which it's not. And the last thing you want to do is read something that doesn't live up to expectation. But what I was so excited about was it's a very small story, an original story and a take on war and the people that war affects through different different eyes to see it through the eyes of the, the peasant family and the orphan children and the widow. So I was so happy that it it wasn't trying to be anything like Braveheart and had its own original story to tell. So I read it and just fell in love with it. And just, we just, I think it only, from there, it was only about six months till we were in production. Wow. So from a chance encounter on a a film set to having cameras and a crew and actually to be making the film six months, that that feels rather, that feels incredibly quickly. I mean, for people listening at home, what are we... I'm looking, you're looking at 18 months, two years, three years, 10 years. There's a lot, there was a whole wave of Netflix films last year that were seven or eight years in development. The King, a big historical, you know, the uh, Richard the third, fourth, fifth, you know, the sort of Shakespearean yes. stuff like that. The, the, another big one, another big historical piece. I think the turnaround was because the script had been so well developed and then Angus already had actor friends in mind for some of the roles. So Jared Harris and, Kevin McNally, and then I've got a bunch of actors that I just thought were perfect for the, for the roles. And so I think that's why we progressed. Also, it was 
set in the winter and it very much needed to be for the story. And that was the other time pressure on it. It was either now or another year later. And so all those things added up. We were prepping a different film here in Montana, a Western, and that helped us as well because we're able, we're already so far along with locations. But Montana was actually necessary to be able to make the film because of the tight turnaround uh, and also my crew being largely American. So, but that was a really de- determining factor because if Montana couldn't look like Scotland, then we, wouldn't, we couldn't make the film. We brought on Shores Wallace, who is a historian and was in Braveheart, and he's a stunt coordinator as well. And so we would send him pictures of Montana and he would go, oh, that could be Glencoe and there's this area outside Sterling and here's this part of Isle of Skye and we would send him back pictures and it was really remarkable down to the stone that's in the ground. It was really remarkable how similar Montana could look to Scotland. I uh, I have to say as a cynical sort of film worker and observer, I did look at it and uh, my immediate reaction was, oh, wow, this is Europe somewhere. This It felt like I thought, oh, maybe it's Bulgaria or Czechoslovakia mm. or somewhere. But that's fascinating that it was that was all a, a domestic or all American anyway. No, so n- there was never any chance of you filming it in Australia? <laughs> no, um, but um, the Barry Reef version would have been nice, like my shirt. But the, um, the, the, but no, and we were lucky enough because Montana winters are hideous. But back where we, where we were setting this film in the Highlands, the snow was a really good thing. And then we went to Scotland to film for a few weeks and it was during the Beast from the East storm. Oh. And so, which most people would say, oh, that's terrible. But for us, it was, it was perfect. And so when you see the start of the film, and the very end of the film, that's Isle of Sky during The Beast from the East, and it really made everything kind of fit and feel like the same movie. So I, don't, I couldn't think of any, this is a little off topic, I couldn't think of any other, apart from your John Wick and the Star Wars films, where, where, where a, an actor and a character moves from one film to another with a whole different set of problems and, and, and production people. But moving on to my next question, that the sort of contrast between... Robert the Bruce in the first film, where he was very much the villain of the piece, and, and now he's very much the hero of the piece, and actually sort of he, he turned from this traitorous person to this sort of hunted terrorist. How, how was that? I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Yeah, so the history thing was our guiding light. And of course, Braveheart took a lot of, you know, creative choices, which I have no problem with. It's a movie. Uh, and, and Braveheart did such wonderful things for, for Scotland in many, many, many ways. But, you know, if you remember the end of Braveheart, it's, it's, it's Robert the Bruce riding into Bannockburn with, you know, these handkerchief from William Wallace. And, and so we know, well, from history, this is Scotland's greatest ever king. And so it was bridging that gap. And with 25 years, obviously the age is is a factor and something we really had to consider. But because our Robert the Bruce starts our film so broken, because he was seen as a loser king, losing battles and battles and battles and battles before Bannockburn, it kind of worked that he was this broken down guy. And it also worked that we were telling the story through the eyes of people who had fought for him and lost for him. And it weighed so heavily on him. Also, we're interested in telling the story of Scots versus Scots. It didn't need to be an English versus a Scottish thing. You know, the interclan rivalries that exist today is what I found incredibly interesting and also not stories that have been told 
much to have so to have this guy on the run in in areas where he was not supported where they supported the common was just more and more reason to like the script and tell take it on a different different path and then we connect with him right through the end of the film to the lead up to Bannockburn again so we're almost becoming this little tiny tiny little rogue one to to fit to connect the pieces and we look forward to continue continuing to do that you know there's so many more stories to tell the this could be a product of the time but the the role of your sort of the female characters again this was this is based on history and true you know true events Mm. but it seemed to me that the the women the sort of strong scottish woman stereotype was much more uh, sort of present in this thing and and there was was much more of a feminist sort of bent to this that was the mate that was such an attraction like when do you see a film like this and you're concentrating on who was staying at home and what their loss was. And it was so, you know, to see Ivor, the young daughter and Scott and Carney, and to focus on what was happening at the farm in the croft was so interesting and different. And then Robert the Bruce learning to care and love again, seeing it through the eyes of their sacrifice. And he's ready to let it all go. But then he, when he sees what he's lost, well, their loss would be worth nothing if he didn't do what he was supposed to do. It's also how we could make the film in such a short amount of time on a limited budget and why it's really special that people have been able to see it. And it shows also the popularity of these Scottish legends. And, but yeah, to answer your question quickly, that was a, a massive draw. Also to not have the typical sexual attraction between the the peasant woman that you would expect to happen and the king. You know, we didn't need to invent an affair with the Princess of Wales or, or, <laughs> or it didn't need, the film didn't need it, I don't think. And it wasn't about that. It was just about a strong woman convincing the broken king that he still needs to lead. I appreciated there not being that forced romance. Because I, for, for a minute there, I thought, oh, they're not going to do that, are they? <laughs> and then when it didn't happen, I was overjoyed. That's great. That's great. Yeah, that was a big, big plus. And Anna brought so much to the table in that role, as did the kids. Talitha and Gabriel are actually brother and sister, which was great because you get the bickering for free and you get that, you know, and that those that brother and sister relationship along with Carney, the older brother, we thought worked really well. And the cold only helped us bond because it was so cold. It was average temperature is about nine degrees Fahrenheit. I don't, I can't remember what that is Celsius, but it's cold. And although there were interiors, we're never really interior because we're just in a croft. It was, none of it was studio and there's no windows. So it was freezing, but it helped the film. We were worried about snow continuity and, and we didn't need to worry about that. And we, but we saved a lot of money with the VFX. So we didn't need to provide any of the, <laughs> the vapor. I was going to say, uh, when I was watching that, I'm like, blimey, uh, there's a lot of, uh, they've added a lot of uh, breath here. And then eventually I was like, oh, I think it's real. It's pre- but that was <laughs> good. There's <laughs> that one scene when Robert the Bruce is first in the house. Yes. The farm, and they all go out by the fire to talk to him. And that was a, that was blizzard. Like that was blizzard, but it looks so authentic. And John Garrett, the cinematographer did, quite a phenomenal role in the conditions to, because to take care of the lenses and have the equipment operating in those conditions was really some kind of effort. We, we would drive out to set 
you know, at 5 a.m. in pitch black and we'd get to the point in the road where we'd have to put the chains on every morning and we would be under the car. We'd kind of be racing to get it done because it was so cold and we'd have our iPhone lights on trying to chain up the car. And I'm Australian, so I'm not the best at snow chains. And literally the first thing we would say to each other would be under the car. We'd just say, basically, fuck you to each other. And then that was how we started the day, every day. And then we'd get to set, we'd get a coffee, and then we'd slowly, we'd slowly warm up and we'd get going. So you're Australian, obviously, but you have some connection to, to Scotland or to, to Scottish uh, heritage in some way. Yeah, strong Celtic. So my mother's side is, they're from Tipperary, and my father's side is from Glasgow. And they actually came to America, to Washington State. Uh, and I have a bunch of Scottish family up in that Spokane region, North Washington. And so I've been lucky enough to be go to Scotland a lot. And so, like I was saying before, that was our number one fear. Like, could we pull it, pull it off here? Mm. But there's such an amazing Scottish contingency and heritage up here and obviously in Canada as well. So we're surprised just how much, how many Scots are up here in the Northwest. I'm constantly, uh, I'm constantly amazed. Uh, I, I, for a, for a long time, I, there are, uh, I would meet a lot of Irish people in America, but actually through St. Andrews, I, I am meeting a lot more Scots in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. Definitely. I couldn't, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to, but I could, I couldn't sort of pinpoint any particular style or influence or, or, or sort of directorial direction you were going in, but who, who, if you had to pick, I know it's a, a horrible difficult question who 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 were your biggest directorial influences this one was dictated on the conditions and we found out very early on that the shot list and the storyboards that we had were not going to work day to day and if we couldn't keep a constant theme or mood it would be it would it would be stupid so we decided that we would just observe a lot more and let the weather and the and the characters you know just do their thing which worked really well because the fly in the wall in this type scenario worked really well and the the locations are so spectacular. We didn't, and even if we wanted to, couldn't get too fancy mm. with the camera. But my influences growing up, you know, George Miller being Australian, George Miller was, you know, we watched those films. And then, you know, Scorsese was a big... Sorry, sorry for the mm. for the audience at home. We're talking about the Mad Max films, uh, mm. the, the modern one and the original Road Warrior. They're called. It's called the Road Warrior in America mm-hmm. for some reason, but... Those films, those films were made, you know, the first two were made, you know, an hour from my house, just in rural, rural parts of Victoria, Australia. And it was kind of fantastic to grow up thinking, okay, so that was just made there. And then you had people like Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford and all these filmmakers, Australian filmmakers in the seventies and eighties was a great jumping pad for us young directors, as were the talent coming over in the acting stakes. And so we've always been very blessed with representation you know you always had an opportunity to have a meeting as a director because it's you know just like as an actor because there's there's a history there but then Scorsese was a massive influence on me but but growing up in suburban Australia you you look for your own voice and it's actually Paul Thomas Anderson that showed us that you could tell that type of story in suburban LA and so when I was watching Boogie Nights, which I think came out when I was 17, that was like, oh, wow. So you can do good fellas, but you can keep it in your own world. And then Magnolia. And so he, that was a massive influence on me, not so much with style, just with giving confidence that your own stories are enough. So, yeah, so that, that would be the people that I would. And obviously, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, pretty hard to go past Spielberg 
and and these type of guys because those films when I was watching you know E.T. and these types of movies they were very very inspirational and so yeah and not to mention Mel Gibson you know Mel Gibson Apocalypto is such an underrated well maybe not underrated but it's such a brilliant film to go from a Braveheart to the Passion of the Christ to an Apocalypto that was pretty inspiring as well personal mel gibson was one of the first sort of real movie stars that i was in close proximity to and like early 90s uh, he he did a, a couple of really gritty sort of gangster films yeah he was um no 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 you're right and you know he 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 he's so generous with dvd commentaries like if you watch the braveheart commentary he's talking about richard donner and he's talking about what he learned in lethal weapon he's talking about how george miller taught him how to cut frames to make the impact of the sword more and right. he's so generous with, as is Paul Thomas Anderson in early commentaries when he made them. I find, although I went to film school, I'd find you would learn a hell of a lot from those commentary tracks. And when you learn that everybody's stealing and borrowing from everybody else, <laughs> it kind of makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah, so you're, you're the director's commentaries are your postgrad uh, studies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I know we're, uh, we're we're up against the clock a little bit. So uh, what are you? So you're in you're in Montana currently. I'm I'm assuming you're in pre production on something, or you have another project in the works. I mean, yeah. it's a strange time to be doing anything. But uh, what what are you up to right now? So we're developing a James Douglas movie because Robert the Bruce has been very you know, has been very successful, and it it showed us that there's an audience there. Mm. And James Douglas really needs his own film. Okay. Um, and so, and his, his relationship with Robert the Bruce is legendary. I mean, there's so much more to tell there on a, on a bigger scale than Robert the Bruce. But so we're working on that, but we've also built a Western town here called Yellowstone Film Ranch, which you can find on uh, Instagram. It's only 45 minutes from Yellowstone. And it's the, it's the area and land where we shot Robert the Bruce. Uh, very lucky to have executive producer Carter Bame, who was the, you know, the driving force to bring Robert the Bruce to Montana only if it could look like Scotland because we didn't want to look like idiots. We're very happy that at the Glasgow screening, like people couldn't pick which was where and that helped us to believe. And of course the snow helps, but when you're traveling, traveling through Glencoe, you could be traveling 20 minutes from here and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to pick the difference um, mm. down to the color of the rocks, like I said before. So we're, we're making a Western, which was, you know, the Western that we set out to make before Robert the Bruce. It's just the timing, like you said, is hardcore at the moment. But thankfully, Montana hasn't been too badly touched by the virus, touch wood. Mm. And so it's always been a dream of mine to make a Western. And now we have a town to be able to, to do that. Montana is a pretty safe place right now so you know with a bit of luck we'll make a western uh later this year and then we'll move into james douglas in the new year fantastic so robert the bruce it you know it was released i i watched it on uh itunes but what was the original plan was it was it theatrical you said you had a screening in glasgow yeah it was kind of it was it was pretty heartbreaking we had 600 screens lined up and the film was clearly shot for the for the theater but the silver lining was so many more people have been able to see it because we haven't been competing against massive studio product. And so although it was heartbreaking not to have our LA and New York premieres and have our theatrical, mm. and we're also going to be released, Braveheart was going to have a 25th anniversary and they agreed to play our trailer 
at the front of Braveheart, which was such a beautiful thing for them to do. They had to watch yeah. the film and approve it. And so we lost all of that. But the great thing was our distributor Screen Media did a fantastic job of getting us out there. And we were the number one independent film for a bunch of weeks. And then once you have that presence on the iTunes and Amazon, it, it tends to just start to fulfill itself. And it's what, as you know, it's, it's what an indie film needs to not just be buried because once you have to start typing in the full title, <laughs> you, you've lost 90% of your audience that just <laughs> likes to flick through Netflix and find the picture that they like. So we were, the virus ended up being quite fortunate for the film's release because there's just no way an indie film can compete with studio product that has the, that has the placement that they, that they have and pay for. Yeah. So in that sense, it was great because as a filmmaker, you just want maximum eyeballs you know the ego of the theater is beautiful but if it means a million more people can watch it at home than they would have otherwise then I, i'll take that every time mm. so your next project what do you think what do you what, what if you had to if you were a betting man what do you think about a theatrical release i mean we're, we're looking at what 12 months 18 months down the line i don't see in the u.s theaters being a factor next year either mm. it's one thing to say that you have a vaccine it's who's going to be the first to get it Maybe you can be the first and let us know how it goes. <laughs> I think they should. <laughs> I think they should give it out free uh, with popcorn. I think if you go and see a movie on a Friday night, you should get a free uh, vaccination. <laughs> so I think it's a new, it's a new world, and you see so many people buying home projectors and just bettering their home experience. And even if it's at reduced capacity, I just can't see cinemas bouncing back next year. Mm. And so it is a new world to consider all those things. It's 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 sad. It's incredibly sad but i think we'd be not naive to think that it's going to be business as usual next year yes that's wishful thinking uh, uh, drive-ins are making a bit of a resurgence i believe in montana or wyoming is the world's only uh, drive-in motel where wow. you can uh, they have speakers in the room and a giant projection screen outside the hotel and you open your curtains and lie in bed and can watch the film all the all the motel rooms are facing the I screen love it. I, i've heard of that <laughs> and they're actually the Bozeman, where you fly into here, where I am, right. just reopened their drive-in theater. And Carter, the executive producer I mentioned, his family used to run the drive-in here in Livingston. And so there's been a lot of talk about that. And actually, mm-hmm. they want to play Robert the Bruce next week, which I'm all for, because with the kids, it's fantastic to take, you know, a car load. And I, I miss the drive-in. Like, it used to be such an awesome thing. So that, there, like you said, there are some positives. I went, yeah, I went, I, I was lucky enough to go to the last drive-in in LA, which was, uh, you know, when I just got to America, but, uh, uh Terminator 2 wow. on the bill, Terminator 2 and Pet Cemetery double bill. Judgment Day. That is a yep. classic. <laughs> All through a tiny little metal speaker hanging on my car window, but still it was, uh, well, it was for, st- <laughs> for a sound person. <laughs> How do you go with the drive-in? Like, <laughs> Well, nowadays it's good. And actually, I did buy all the equipment myself to test it. So I have an FA. I can do my own drive-in because we, we did a drive-in premiere. I just did it as a favor to someone. We have, oh. big, we have big theatrical projectors here I'm able to borrow. It is tough. And, but it, it, the, the, the new technology is using FM transmitters. So actually, you've got a really good stereo signal in your car. So it's a lot better than it was. But those, those speaker boxes that used to hang on were kind of always a... So, so these days, if your car audio setup is 
good. It's good. You I would expect, a- yeah, I would actually expect some people to have, to be able to turn their stereo up so loud you sort of feel explosions mm. and hear stuff outside. I haven't I haven't been around to test it much. A friend was doing production at the Rose Bowl. They did a drive-in film there, and then they had actually live stand-up as well. That's in wow. Pasadena in California. And I think it went very well. But it's, yeah. uh, I think what all the venues have realized is unless you're set up to have that level of sort of distancing, it's not possible to make any money. You have to have it no. figured out beforehand. This is like restaurants having a tenth of the normal customers. It doesn't work. No, and Same they're already with- on such a knife edge already. Yeah. I mean, I could see movie theaters maybe doing private rentals where you have a pool of people that you know are, are safe and not infected and they would rent a whole room for themselves and maybe do a streaming model where, uh, oh, we'd like to watch Robert the Bruce. Okay, let's get 12 mates together and we'll rent yeah. a theater and we'll, we'll all pay you know 10 bucks and we'll see yeah. it. I could see that maybe like boutique screening rooms becoming a, a thing mm. where you just you go in and just use your phone and choose any film you want. Mm. That, that could happen. Yeah, uh, but I know that all the theaters are pivoting. The the bit there's a bigger problem in that the center of cities are becoming empty now. So these suburban theater chains will be okay, but the central, the big theaters in the middle of town, I don't think they're going to have any customers for a while. Yeah. No, it's it's sad, but there's a new model there to be had, and so it's it's just going to be how how quickly people can pivot, I guess. Well, yes, well, pivoting like doing podcasts. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, it's. It's a Zoom. decent, yeah, the Zoom recordings. Yeah, we're doing video as well. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's my hair. Um, <laughs> well, Richard Gray, director of Robert the Bruce, available on all fine streaming platforms now. Please run out and rent it once or twice. I nearly rent it. I also found, I nearly went back and watched one of your previous, your last film was also available on streaming. That was a horror film? Yeah, there's a couple. So Sugar Mountain I made up in Alaska with mm-hmm. Carrie Elways and Jason Momoa, which was fun. It was cold as well. Mm-hmm. And then we made a tiny little coming-of-age film called Broken Ghost that was, in, that was my introduction to Montana when I fell in love with it. And that was a few years back, and then Robert the Bruce now. We've been surprised at how many DVDs are moving on Redbox and Walmart oh. because I guess that's another thing that you don't really expect anymore. And it, it might be that we have an older audience, but it might just be also that everybody's looking for ways to watch it at home. And, you know, I'd much prefer to watch a Blu-ray when it's possible. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we all like that. I, I mean, I think physical media, I mean, the Academy's stopping physical screeners this year. I think it's the last year. It's mm. a bit of a shame. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, Christopher Nolan, certain people still insisted on sending out Blu-rays and that was mm. nice. But yeah, there is, a, there is an element of that. I mean, it's like when MP3s came, came in mm. and streaming is here. But it's, I think the, the quality is getting there. I mean, Apple are actually, you know, I've got friends with Apple and they're, they're dealing with how to get Atmos working on your phone and on your headphones. And that'll, mm. be a, that'll be a big step up in terms of your home experience, I think. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome to chat to you, my friend. One last question. What gives you the right to call yourself an Australian film director? Have you, I mean, you've, you've, you're, you're, as far as I can tell, you're an American film director now. That sounds like shots fired. <laughs> you must be a Scottish <laughs> film director. No, I'm, but, that, but what I'm saying is, I mean, uh, it seems like, I mean, like me, I wouldn't, I'm consider myself, I'm English, but I consider myself an American sound guy. Sure. Uh, cause just because just I've done the bulk of my work here. So I, I guess it's welcome it's like, to America is what I'm saying. No, it's just like you, man. So I've been here for 10, 10 years and right. my, ki- my kids are American and you just go where the work is. I've been lucky enough to go back and make a couple of films in Australia. Okay, um, but you know it's just it's tough. It's tough, and you know you're always looking for more stories. And Australia has amazing incentives, mm. so it's only ever a matter of time. But after ten years in LA, 
it being up here in Montana is is a nice nice escape, and particularly with the current timing. Yeah, I'm the only person stuck in LA. I think, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I, it's it's a fact it's a factory town. We're here, you know, we're here for the work. So, exactly. but the, the industry is still based. There's still, a, you know, the factories are still here as, as slow oh. as they are. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Well, uh, well, congratulations on Robert the Bruce and on your upcoming two upcoming projects. It sounds like what are they again? There's the cowboy project, the the, the western. We've got a western, and we're working on a, a couple of different scripts for James Douglas. Great, different storylines. Fantastic. We'll all look forward to seeing that. Thank you. Thank you guys for taking the time out to sit down with the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast and video cast. Richard, is there a website where people can hear about your new projects, find out about upcoming things, also to see where they can download or rent Robert the Bruce? Yeah, we're, so and thank you to St. Andrews who've been incredibly supportive of Robert the Bruce for the entire campaign. And you can get, you know, whether it's Amazon, Google, iTunes, wherever you want to find Robert the Bruce, it's available to rent and purchase Walmart, Best Buy, Redbox, everything. And then for us to see what we're building up here in Montana, you could check out Yellowstone Film Ranch on Instagram to see it's a 28 building, 1880s Western town that we've built in Paradise Valley here. So it's a dream. It's a dream come true. So if you want to check that out, that's where you'll find me. All right. Well, thank you. And Ben, thank you so much for being our show moderator, like co-host. I really appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thank and you. Ben. You guys have had a chance to now finally meet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nice to meet you. And nice to meet you, Joanna. Thank you. It was great meeting both of you. This has been the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles' podcast. Tune in next time for new guests, new moderators, new topics. Thank you, guys. See you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information on the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles, visit www.standrewsla.org. And don't forget to like our Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube channels as well. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.